for serving us so well. Turn, if you would, to Romans 8. That's Romans chapter 8. We are getting back into the heart of Romans 8. And this morning, I was just just sensing my need, like, for what we just sung about, like getting in touch with all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Or as one hymnist put it, when all around my soul gives way, Christ is all my hope and stay. And Romans 8 is all about riveting our hearts on that kind of truth and getting help. And as we kind of approach it, Let's just all of us collectively just be asking the Lord to do a fresh work in our hearts because we need the spirit of God to attend to the word of God to get the help of God in our souls. Amen. As the Dutch proverb says, you pray me full and I'll preach you full. And that's that's ultimately what we're doing. We're asking God to do a work here. Amen. Let's let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness to us. Lord, we thank You that You have, you have given us divinely inspired truths, Lord, to build our life on. You've given us the glorious promises of Romans 8. You've given us treasure, Lord, to guide our lives and, and, and ballast to put into our boat when the storms of life rock us to the core. And Lord, we need Your help. We need Your encouragement. We need Your Spirit to take Your Word and to bring about transformation in our hearts. To bring about encouragement. To bring about healing. To bring about conviction. To bring about strength. And we pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would blow upon this time and Lord, open every one of our hearts to receive the truth of God from the Word of God and that it would come in power, that it would come in grace, that it would come, Lord God, wielded by the precision of a divine physician who knows how to use the scalpel of the Word of God in our souls. And I pray a message would minister to each one of us, Lord, where we need to hear it most. And so we ask for your help now, and we ask that you would minister to our hearts through this book and through this most glorious chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's been a month or so since we've been into Romans 8. And I I told you, Romans 8 is like the Holy of Holies in the New Testament. It's it's the, the greatest chapter, one preacher said. It's the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible. And so we're kind of climbing to the summit, you know, of of biblical truth and biblical promises and biblical hope. And it has all sorts of things that we need. And we've seen in in the previous messages as we walk through Romans 8 we've seen like for the Christian there's no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ. Every ounce of wrath that we deserve poured out on our heads has been removed and absorbed by Jesus. And by faith, we've been declared righteous. That's what verse 1 says. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we move through this magnificent reality of like the Spirit of God is all over Romans chapter 8. The Spirit of God is the one who sets us free from the spirit or from the bondage and slavery that the law brings and that our sin brings over our lives. Verse 2 says the Spirit sets you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then we walked through and we saw like this same Holy Spirit is the same Spirit that is the guarantee that we will be raised up from the dead. Verse 11. Isn't that what that says? If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Like God's going to do something. We, we read about what that looks like a few moments ago in Revelation. We read about the glory that's coming. Well, it starts when God does a work in the people of God. And then all of creation, all of the material world gets renewed because we need a gloriously new playground when we've got new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth. Just think about it. It's like God is, He's going he's gonna to remake it all and then put you in it in a totally glorified state without pain, without suffering, without sorrow. That's what's coming for us. And we spent some time thinking about like how to, how to fight sin in this present day. Like we're still dealing with sin. And, and the mark of our sonship, the mark of our adoption means we're fighting sin in the power of the Spirit. But we have the Holy Spirit as a, a witness that we're children of God. The Spirit of God in you bears witness that you're a child of God. He bears witness within your spirit that you're a child of God. So God has not left us without great help. And then we're reminded, verse 17... If you're a child of God, then you're an heir of God and all the promises. And you remember that message like, like we get everything. We get God. We get new bodies. We get the world in a new universe. But we've got to suffer first. And then comes the glory. And so I'm like, I'm wrestling this week with stepping into some more of Paul's encouragement and help for suffering people. This message today is all about people suffering as believers. It's, it's about the reason we suffer, and it's about the hope we can have in the midst of suffering. And so that's why I was just, I'm wrestling. Lord, would you do a work in us? Because so many of us, and I've been around long enough to know, like many of us in this room and many of us who are probably watching online are going through exquisite suffering. 
are going through gut-wrenching, painful, debilitating suffering. And so what, what's Paul going to give us? Like, what, what's Paul going to give us that can help me with the cancer diagnosis? What's Paul going to give me when I'm on the operating, operating table laid out about ready to go under anesthesia? What's Paul going to do? What, what's he going to say to me when I'm totally with, just struck with deep loss? In this world. Maybe you've lost a job and it just sent you to the ground. Maybe you've lost a loved one. And the grief is choking. Romans 8 is all about help. For that. It's all about God's promises for his people when they go through deep, dark, difficult seasons of suffering. Verse 17 talks about the suffering we go through because we're Christians. And there is a unique kind of suffering we go through, right? If we're a child of God in this world, if we're standing for Jesus, we're going to come up against opposition. We're going to come up against persecution. We're going to come up against things. I was reading through a journal that's 20, 20 years old this week. And I was noticing, you know, sometimes we think like when you first become a Christian, like everything's gravy and you're like, oh, you know, and everything's great and there's no, nothing's going wrong. And I'm reading through the journal and it's like, I'm praying for persecution. I was persecuted again in the shop. God, would you help me? Would you help me? Would you encourage me? Would you help me endure? There were times where I was just like real raw in some of this journal entries. I'm just like wondering and I'm trying to remember what went on, you know, but in that moment. I was having to come to God for help because there's a unique suffering that we go through as Christians when we get persecuted and we get punched in the gut. And Paul is about to broaden out now to all kinds of suffering that we experience and the reason for it. So we're going we're gonna to walk into it and I want you to notice like he wants us to carefully consider something. He wants us to see like groaning, the groaning and travailing and the struggles that we're experiencing are going to give way to glory one day. And he wants us to persevere in patient hope. And we're not going to walk into all of that today, but that's kind of the roadmap for, for how we're going to look at this passage in the coming weeks. So let's look at verse 18 and, and see Paul's help for us. This is God's word. This is the spirit of God speaking to us. Verse 18, for I considered or for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the re revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves as believers who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. And now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. Now, sometimes, if we're honest, sometimes when we face suffering, when we face exquisite, gut-wrenching suffering in this world, we can be tempted to think, if God's loving, if God's powerful, why is he letting me go through this? And then we can conclude, because I'm going through this, he must not love me. And perhaps some of you have been there and perhaps some of you are there right now. Maybe some of you will be there. And so this is preparation to get ready for those kind of trials and sufferings that come. Maybe it's going to be healing balm for you today. Like, I'm making sense of this. Because Paul, Paul's just going to hit it head on. He's going to run into it. And he's no stranger to suffering. He's no, he's no novice. He's no, you know, pontificating in some ivory tower, disconnected from suffering in this world. Paul was a professional sufferer. He knew what it meant to be stoned within an inch of his life. He knew what it meant to be bit by a viper just randomly out of some fire as he's on an island of Malta. He knows what it means to be shipwrecked and to be having sleepless nights and to be pursued by his fellow Jews, to be lowered out of a city in a basket because somebody might kill him. He knows what it was to be maligned and mocked and misunderstood. He knows the most exquisite suffering. And at one point, he's stoned and beaten to an inch of death. To within an inch of death. And all the disciples thought he was dead, or the, the believers around him, until he started moving a little bit. This Paul knew what it was like to be shipwrecked, to be a prisoner, to be in a Roman dungeon, to be totally isolated and disconnected. Imagine if you couldn't come to church and you were just stuck in some prison cell. You didn't even have a Bible. Well, Paul knew that. He knew that kind of suffering, so he's not coming at this question of suffering, and he's not coming at this reality of suffering and thinking like, hey, 
Hey, like this is something that's just, you know, I'm going to kind of philosophize here and I have no experiential reality to bear witness to the truths of how God works and enters into suffering. But as you saw in this chapter, like Paul's after putting some ballast in our boat. And ballast is like weight. It's like a heavy thing that stabilizes a boat. It's like an anchor. or It's like something that's going to help you stand when the the boat gets smacked with waves. And, And when you're in the midst of storms, if you don't have ballast in your boat, you're going to capsize. And so many people in the face of suffering... can just say, I'm done. I'm not following Christ anymore. Because the suffering was so intense. And they didn't have ballast in their boat. They didn't have a sense like God is up to something and God is reminding us something of something in the present reality of our suffering. So we're going to see it right here. The present reality of suffering in Romans 8.18. Let's look at it. Suffering is a present reality. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul is acknowledging like suffering's coming, suffering's coming in this present time. So there's a temporal indicator in which something has happened where suffering and pain and difficulty and hardship has entered our world for a season, for a time, for an age. Verse 19 Tells us a little bit more, right? For the creation was, or sorry, for the creation waits eagerly. It's eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's like the personification of creation waiting for something to happen, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, which we saw earlier in this chapter that the sons of God are Christians. Adopted believers in the family of God, sons and daughters of God. We were in Adam's family and under the curse. And now we've been brought into the family of God. We've been forgiven of our sins, but we're still in the midst of a fallen world. And the creation itself is longing for something to happen. That that picture of eagerly waiting is like a child up on their tippy toes straining and craning their neck, trying to look to see if something glorious is coming. It's like children on Christmas morning on their tippy toes, looking at all the presents. I can't wait to see what's coming. Creation is eager. It's longing. It's waiting for something to happen. And then verse 20 tells us why we live in this age of suffering and curse. For the creation was subjected to futility. Do you see that? The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So something was happening 
in the past that caused the creation to become subject to curse and futility. That word futility means vanity or emptiness or purposelessness or there's a frustration that the creation cannot achieve its desired end, its desired purpose. And so what's happening, brothers and sisters, is we're being pointed back to the garden when things just fell apart. When Adam and Eve were tempted and they believed another word and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they were shamed and they were separated from God and curse came into the world and death entered in through that curse and all sorts of corruption because God in His judicial rendering of the right response to that kind of evil brought about the effects of the curse. There was consequences that came. There's a subjection. But notice that God does not subject it without hope. Look at verse 20 again. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. So it's not like Adam and Eve or the rest of creation wanted the curse. But it was subjected in hope. Do you realize Genesis 3 comes with the promise of God's purpose to redeem human beings through Jesus and to restore all the created order? That's what Romans 8... You might think of Romans 8 as a divine commentary. This passage, 18-25. to A divine commentary on Genesis 3. Sin comes into the world. It permeates everything. What happens in the garden, right? Thorns and thistles mess up work. How many farmers in here, right? Farmer, farming just goes great. You never have any problems. Machines don't break down. Crops don't get water. You know, like, it's not like th there's a reality that there's frustration happening. There's a sense in which you're going against the grain sometimes. Thorns and thistles have come in as a result. You want to know why no job in this world is 100% satisfying and is always wrought with frustration? Whether you're an accountant or a farmer or a banker, no matter what it is, it's fraught with frustration because we live on the other side of Genesis 3. There's a futility that's come in. There's a sense in which we know the world is broken. That's why we experience the brokenness in our very work. In the things that we've been called to do. And that brokenness, Genesis 3 would remind us, comes into the family. Husband and wife will start having problems. Children, right? Genesis 4. It doesn't take but one generation. You got one brother killing another brother. The first murder only took one generation. Think about that. That's how messed up the fall made things. So the sufferings that we go through in life are a result of being in this age where the world has been affected by the curse. 
It's why we have tornadoes. It's why we have earthquakes. It's why we have tsunamis. It's why cancer exists. It's why we have infectious diseases and pandemics and all the rest. Something's not right. And every time we experience evil, suffering, hard things, it's a reminder that we are just crying out in this world for redemption. All that suffering is reminding us, oh, we need a Redeemer to come in and do something. We need rescue. We need the promise of Genesis 3.15 that somebody would come and write this thing. And His name's Jesus. And Jesus, notice, Jesus doesn't just come in and not deal with suffering. He comes in and He suffers. He suffers on a cross. He comes into the groaning creation. He comes in and is tempted in all points, yet without sin. He comes and bears the mocking and maligning and the the injustice of a mock trial and the, the lashes of the whip and the scourge and the crown of thorns and He's nailed to a cross because our sin is that ugly and it deserves the wrath of God. And Jesus goes to a cross to remind us that in this present reality of suffering, you have an answer in Christ Jesus. You have God's answer. So, we live in a present age of suffering. We don't need to be convinced too much about that. But if we're honest, even as believers... We struggle. We struggle with it. We struggle with failing bodies. We struggle with the difficulties of parenting. We struggle with the reality of loss, grief at times. And we feel the weight of it in this fallen world every single day. Every time we turn on the news, every time we read an article, It's all been touched by the fall. It's all been touched with the stain of sin. And so we really need some hope. We need Romans 8 to come in like this this mountain of hope that we could just stand on and see it. If you get up to the top of the mountain, you look around, you see the world the way it is, but you're on the mountain. And that's what Paul wants you to see. That's what verse... 18 is all about, right? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Like something's going to happen to you one day. Paul's saying something's going to happen to you one day. It's going to be so glorious. It's going to make all of the suffering you've went through look insignificant. And I know how that sounds as a preacher coming up here saying all your suffering is going to look insignificant. Significant one day. This is God's word though. Like this isn't my word. This is God's word. And he wants you to know the glory is so stupendous, so marvelous, so excellent, so sin removing, so world reshaping, so soul satisfying, so sin forgiving, so body renewing, That you cannot help but see all of these sufferings you experience as a light, momentary affliction. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 
16. It says, so we don't lose heart, brothers, sisters. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, there it is again, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's beyond comparison. When you hold one thing in the scale, here's your sufferings. It's feeling heavy. It's feeling heavy. I live in the real world. It's feeling heavy. But when you look at the glory and you put that on the other side of the scale and you see who Jesus is, you see that He's the One who came to deal with our sin and our suffering and our pain and to redeem us completely, body and soul. It just shoots through the roof. You're going to get to live in a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation and suffering will be banished. Suffering will be persona non grata. It, it, it's going to be not welcome in the new heaven and new earth. Death will be no more. That's the promise. That makes a difference in the hospital room. It makes a difference on the long night of pain in bed and you could not sleep. It makes a difference when you lament the loss of something profoundly special in your life. It makes a difference when you face persecution. And it makes a difference when you've been freshly punched in the gut and the wind has been knocked out of you by this thing called suffering and trials and you're gasping for air and then Paul comes in with a Romans 8 buterol and just says, I'm giving you oxygen for your life. It's your lifeblood. That's what Paul wants to do. He wants to take people who are crying out. My tears have been my food day and night. Psalm 42.3 While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Or Psalm 42.5 Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him my salvation and my God. He wants to help to get people from dehabilitating depression to see a roadmap of suffering on the way to glory. And Jesus right at the center of it all. He's the crucified King. He's the, he's the one who enters into our suffering world totally beat up by sin. And He takes it on Himself. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him should not perish. Shouldn't perish in the world of suffering. Shouldn't perish in this present age, in this present darkness. But, whoever believes on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's glory. That's glory. Everlasting life goes on Forever. It goes on to glory. And it's not consummated till we get to be in a new heaven and a new earth. We need the hope. And we need to just really get some 
help to live as Christians who are, who are made sane in this crazy world we live in by the hope of Mount Everest coming up into our life. It's a Romans 8-shaped Mount Everest. Just get your heart around this chapter. Spend time this next month just reading it and reading it and memorizing it and thinking about it and, and seeing how these things are connecting. And let it, let it work some surgery in your heart and be like healing balm in your soul. So the last thing we see in verse 18, because we're only doing a little bit today, is when you, you need to know, like, glory's coming. The glory that's coming is the thing that suffering's not worth comparing. And it's this glory that's going to be revealed to us. That's interesting. Some translations say in us. There's some ambiguity there. In us or to us. It's both. So when Jesus comes back, this is a picture of Jesus coming back. This is a picture, right, of something happening. Verse 20, for the creation, or sorry, verse 19, for the creation waits eagerly for something, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So we're going to be revealed. Something else has to be revealed to us transforming us so that we could be revealed for who we truly are in Christ. You, you, are you have only experienced the first fruits of your redemption, the first fruits of your salvation. The Holy Spirit's a down payment. Something better is coming. Something glorious is coming for the people of God. Redemption will be complete and consummated. It's what Horatio Spafford sings about, right, in his hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And that hymn moves from the present trials to the day when all the trials will be gone. Horatio Spafford knew suffering. He watched, or he didn't watch, but he, he saw several of his children die in a watery grave when he got a telegram from his wife that they perished in an ocean liner collision in the middle of the Atlantic. And then he pens this, not but a few months later, on a voyage to go share the gospel. Like, what, ha what happens to somebody when they're gripped with Romans 8 realities is they can enter into that kind of suffering, that kind of grief, that kind of loss with a rock-solid hope of what's coming. And that Jesus is with them through the whole thing. It's not like Jesus comes at the end. Jesus sent His Spirit as a down payment. Jesus is with you forever, even to the end of the age. So one day, it will all be worth it. All of it will be worth it. When there will be no tombstones, there'll be no graves in the new creation, there's going to be no death and no pain, it'll be wiped away, wiped off the map of the universe. 
and imagine what it'll be like. Well, it'll be like Revelation 21, right? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Heaven's coming down to us. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then John hears a, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Glory comes when God comes to be with man forever. Okay? And, and, and glory is coming and He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And then, here comes the, the cosmic etch-a-sketch to all the messed up stuff in creation and all the messed up stuff we went through. And what do you do with the Etch-A-Sketch? You draw those little lines on the knobs and all of that. And when you're done with it, you shake it up. And poof, all of that is gone. That's what verse 4 of Revelation 21 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And this is just what John's letter says in 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are, there's that language, children of God. That's Christians. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, Christ, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We're going to see Him as He is. Like, we're going to get New bodies, new eyes to be able to take in the fullness of Jesus Christ and see Him as He is, and that will transform us. When Jesus comes back, He reveals Himself in glory, gathers His bride, and then glorifies His bride. When Jesus is revealed, the sons of God get revealed. That's what verse 19 is talking about. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God, you can't get revealed until Jesus comes back. If you knew what you were going to be like, you would marvel. A glorified body with every single fiber, every atom, every molecule renewed to be like Jesus in His resurrected state. Radiant, glorious, shining like the sun. And every blade of grass and every tree will be clapping its hands at the revealing of the sons of God and like children on Christmas Day longing for the redemption to be complete. Oh, behold, all things have been made new. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 8. That's what John's saying in his letter. And that's what he's saying in his apocalypse. Glory is coming and that glory will swallow up and make the present suffering look so insignificant. But we need to get the scales balanced. 
And this is a primer for suffering Christians. You know, a primer is something that gets you started. There's so much more help in this word. There's so much more help in Romans 8. There's so much more help that Jesus brings with his very person. There's so much more help in this room as fellow sufferers who have been comforted by Jesus and who are able to comfort others with the comfort they received in their trials. Have you done that? Have you thought about that you get to partake in dispensing this kind of comfort? Some of the most glorious counselors are wounded healers. They're those who've experienced the throes of trial and difficulty and suffering gotten comfort as they look to the promises of God and trusted Jesus and then begin to help others. That's what it means to be the church. That's my job as a pastor. It's our job as the people of God. It's hard to talk about suffering, but it's so gloriously wonderful to talk about how Jesus comes through in our suffering and will one day wipe it off the map. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Romans 8. We thank you, Lord God, that you have given us some help today. Lord, wherever we're at, whether we're struggling with suffering right now and we feel like we need help, we just pray that this would be a time that, that in our hearts we're crying out and if that's you and you just need help today, you cry out to the Lord now during this time of, of worship. Father, I pray that you would be ministering to hearts. That those of us that, that this has like been the balm of Gilead to our souls. We've needed this word. That we would just be coming to you afresh. That, that you would bring about healing and encouragement. And Lord, those who are discouraged and depressed and, and just defeated and beat down lord would you would you dispense the grace of christ to be like a a hearty meal to a hungry soul father i pray for any of those who who have been awakened to their need to trust jesus because they're just caught up in the curse they've never experienced the down payment of the holy spirit they've never experienced the forgiveness of god and they need rescue i pray god that they would be crying out this very moment and confessing their sin and, and saying, Lord Jesus, please save me, a sinner. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the hope for sinners. So, Father, we pray now as we respond in this time of response. Lord, may there be work happening in our hearts, spiritual work. May the Spirit be ministering to our souls, and I pray that you would be meeting with us as we worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.